Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 29 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I am the moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker. Ali Velshi is chief business correspondent for CNN. He's the host of Your Money, the network's weekend business program, and the host of The Ali Velshi Show, which is aired on CNN Radio and CNN.com. A veteran of financial news reporting, Mr. Velshi has covered the U.S. Gov government's economic bailout plan, the financial collapse of Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, AIG, and Lehman Brothers, and the Enron scandal. He reported from Ford, Ford headquarters in Dearborn, Michigan, when the company announced the layoff of 30,000 workers. And he was reporting live from an oil rig in the Gulf of Mexico during the evacuations for Hurricane Katrina. Now based in New York, Mr. Velshi was born in Kenya and raised in Toronto. Graduated from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, with a degree in religion. He's the author of the book, Give Me My Money Back, your guide to beating the financial crisis. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Ali Velshi. Thank you all for that warm welcome. It's uh, great to be back in Minneapolis. This is my third time in a month that I have been here. Uh, I, I do enjoy it. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. Um, and this is a beautiful venue to be in. Uh, it, it's a, just a tremendous church. Uh, and more importantly, the uh, Westminster Town Hall Forums have really undertaken something uh, over the last three decades that is so, so important. And I think uh, perhaps more important today than it's been in decades past, and that is a discussion of the timely and important uh, matters that face us uh, with a view to how we can all participate in them and how we can all behave in a way to improve the greater good. And, and I want to use that as part of my discussion with you. I do encourage those of you uh, who are here in the room uh, to use those index cards because uh, it, it's just such a great opportunity for me to know what you're thinking, what you know, what you disagree with, and what you don't know, uh, because that informs the reporting that I do every day on CNN and on CNN.com and on CNN International and Headline News, all of those, and on radio, all of those venues that we have. It's just so much more helpful when we know what our audience needs to know and we don't give them a whole lot of stuff that they don't need to know but we give them more of what they need. One of the things that I like to specialize in at CNN is explaining and breaking down uh, a number of the complicated economic issues that, that face uh, our audiences today so that they can engage in the, the greater discussion that is going on with some knowledge, armed with some knowledge of, of what the debates are about uh, what the options are that they face. Uh, so the information I get from you is very helpful. Uh, we are this year, uh, we are this week marking the one-year anniversary of the, the failure of Lehman Brothers, the sale of Merrill Lynch to uh, Bank of America, the intervention by the government into AIG. Uh, this really, one year ago, was the week that, that quite possibly changed the course of our history. 
Um, it was, uh, it was a, a very tumultuous week, and I'm going to talk a lot more about that. I also encourage those of you uh, to, uh, who, who can to tomorrow night, no, it's tonight, today's Thursday, uh, on CNN at 11 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central, uh, we are doing a special called uh, the CNN Money Summit, uh, Money in Main Street, where we look at everything that's happened in this recession and over the last year, but more importantly, that's history. It's interesting to look at what's happened, but really let's look at opportunities for the future. And we're doing that with our blue ribbon panel of journalists and experts and economists uh, for an hour. Anderson Cooper and I do this. We do it every several weeks, but this is an important time to do it. And that's really the focus of why I'm here. I would like to, uh, to, to sort of spread the word about what is happening so that you can be best equipped to take advantage of, of the situation in front of you, or at least make sure that you don't get hurt or, or further hurt economically. Now, a year ago this week, I was back in New York, and, and it was the beginning of a, a crisis. I write about it in my book that was sort of three weeks long, uh, but it's, it took what was just a normal recession and made it into a very serious recession. But prior to that, uh, I had been, you know, business was still a very big topic all the way from the end of 2007 all through 2008. So by the end of summer 2008, it was still a big deal, but there were other things going on. And um, I was in the Gulf of Mexico uh, because the hurricanes, there were hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico at the time, and I report on the, uh, the, the effect of of hurricanes on oil production. Many people always wonder why the price of oil spikes as a hurricane is coming in, uh, and that is because they can't take risks in the Gulf of Mexico, which is where 25% of the domestically produced oil in the United States comes from. Uh, there are real rules. If you have the right to, to drill for oil in the Gulf of Mexico, your obligation to the government is that if there is any danger of oil spilling because of a, a, a hurricane or lives being lost, you have got to take very, very serious action to shut down those wells, to evacuate the rigs, uh, and the safety record is excellent in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, you don't hear of oil spills and you don't hear of, uh, of people dying. You do hear of rigs being destroyed, but they lock them down very well. So I'd been in Texas just over a year ago reporting on the first of two major hurricanes. It was uh, Hurricane Gustav. There was Gustav and Ike. Uh, Ike just happened this past weekend a year ago. Uh, but I was frankly tired of being wet and staying in hotels uh, where there's no power and the temperature is always 40 degrees or more. Um, and in fact, after two major hurricanes, I was quite pleased to be back in New York City and relaxing. I was thinking things are going to get a lot easier for me. Um, I didn't realize that a hurricane of another sort was going to uh, hit us. Now. I can't say that I remember much of the financial crisis, the worst part of it, that sort of three-week period a year ago, uh, because I, I kind of worked 20 hours a day and would get home just enough time to sleep and get back to work. Uh, but let me tell you a little about what happened. Um, so a year ago this past Monday was when Lehman Brothers failed, Merrill Lynch was sold to uh, the Bank of America, AIG was bailed out. Uh, by September 29th of last year, uh, th th they had been talking about this bailout bill. You recall Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson had gone to Congress with a two-page bill uh, asking for $700 billion, and there was a real uh, backlash against writing a blank check 
to Wall Street. There were many Americans who were absolutely outraged that Wall Street would have been rewarded for its misdeeds. Uh, and so many people were very against this. And on Monday, September 29th, the bailout bill, which was then greater than 1,000 pages, was voted on in Congress. It was expected to pass. And if you may remember that afternoon, it did not pass. It failed in the House of Commons. Uh, in, in the, in, I'm sorry, House of Commons. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, see, I told you I don't remember much of this. Uh, I've got the wrong country. Uh, it, it failed in Congress, uh, and it, uh, it, the, the Dow plummeted 777 points that day, uh, which even after the, the drops in the Dow that we had been seeing in the previous weeks was a big one. Uh, that was the biggest we'd ever seen. Uh, that was the single biggest one-day point loss in the Dow's history, uh, and what had happened is between Monday, when that bill failed, and Friday, sentiment started to change. And part of that was because people were beginning to understand that this wasn't just a bailout for Wall Street, it was a, an entire credit freeze in the world that didn't only have banks not lending money to companies, banks wouldn't even lend money to each other. Nobody trusted anyone, no one knew what shoe was going to drop next. It had really just frozen credit, and I think what came to happen is many people began to understand the role that credit played in our lives, not just our personal lives, but uh, internationally and amongst banks, that we were a society, like it or not, that was fully, fully, fully dependent on credit. And I think over the course of the week, many people began to understand that if the companies they work for cannot raise money, then uh, those companies will have to cut costs. And uh, one of the easiest ways to cut costs for a company is to lay people off, and that this was going to directly relate to individuals. So while people wanted to punish Wall Street or not reward them for their misdeeds, by the end of the week, the sentiment had changed. People were changing what they were saying to their, their congressmen. And on Friday, October the 3rd, that bill uh, did, in fact, pass. Uh, I remember being one of those people who was outlining to my viewers about the importance of something being done to end this credit freeze, that we couldn't cut off our noses despite our faces, uh, despite the outrage out there about what had been done and the irresponsibility on Wall Street. Now, I, I knew that I had some role in this because uh, by that Friday morning, October 3rd, um, I hit the pinnacle of my career. I appeared on Oprah. Um, I was invited along with my friend Susie Orman to, uh, to explain in, in very simple terms what this bailout meant, what it was meant to achieve. So on the Thursday night, October 2nd, and remember this was just such a crazy, crazy week in, in, in business and in, in the news, I flew, uh, I took a, a night flight, got to Chicago, went straight to the studios, talked to the producers for a few hours, went to the hotel, slept for a few hours, went back in the morning, and on Fridays, Oprah is recorded, uh, it, it's, it's recorded in the morning. So if you live in Chicago, you see it live in the morning, and then it, you see the rerun show at four in the afternoon. And in the morning, I really made my case for why I think something needed to be done. And then hours later, it was voted on. I, I don't know if there's any connection between the two. <clears throat> um, but I did go, I went right to the Chicago Board of Trade, which is where our cameras are. I reported on the passage of the bill, uh, got to the airport, went back, and went to sleep knowing that one chapter, one very ugly, uh, and disturbing chapter in, uh, in our financial history was over. I had no idea what was going to happen next. Now, what happened next is that the economy did worsen. There's no question about that, uh, substantially. It had been a, what you might call a garden variety recession going into uh, 
uh, September 15, 2008, and by the time we emerged, we were definitely in a, uh, a jungle variety recession, uh, one that some people have gone as far as to call a depression, but certainly the worst recession since uh, the Great Depression. Job losses mounted. We knew that would happen. Uh, home prices continued to drop. Markets continued to drop precipitously. Uh, other countries who thought they were better protected from these things than the U.S. Uh, found that they were not. Uh, the world really, really started to, uh, to suffer. Um, now, I have, the reason I've been in Minneapolis a few times in the last month is that I've been touring the country on the CNN Express, which is our big 45-foot uh, luxury motor coach, uh, sort of like a rock star or a NASCAR racer might use. But it's a full broadcast center, and it's, uh, we, we ride it around the country. So I've just finished a trip that's been uh, three weeks on the road, uh, three and a half thousand miles or more, going to small towns, big towns, big cities, industrial cities, state farm, uh, state uh, fairs. Uh, we were here for the for the um, for the fair. Uh, all sorts of places, talking to all sorts of Americans of all different shapes, colors, sizes, socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, about healthcare and about the economy. Um, we, we stopped in small towns. Uh, we stopped in, in you know, Paducah, Kentucky, and Mattoon, Illinois. We've stopped in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Evansville, Indiana. Uh, we, Evansville has just lost or has just learned that they're going to lose 1,100 jobs. They make Whirlpool refrigerators there, and those jobs are being moved to Mexico. We stopped in Madison, Wisconsin, which uh, is really one of the most beautiful towns we've, we've been in. Uh, we stopped in Kansas City, Chicago, uh, Minneapolis, bigger cities. Uh, we even stopped in the south side of Chicago because normally we just report on the south side of Chicago because of the crime situation, but, but people there vote and have concerns about the economy, and some of them are quite serious, so we wanted to talk to them about that. We went to the Illinois, uh, we went to the Iowa State Fair, we went to the Missouri State Fair, uh, the, um, the Minnesota State Fair, uh, one of the things at the, the Missouri State Fair that I ran into, I spoke to the fair director, and he was telling me one of the new features of the State Fair was uh, something called rural living. And it was a manifestation for rural Americans of what I have been calling the new frugality. And in fact, I was talking about the new frugality back in November and December of last year on TV, and next thing I see Time Magazine, which is part of our uh, corporate family, has a cover story, I think in March or April or something, about the new frugality. I, I should have trademarked that. Um, but what I call the new frugality is the idea that by choice or by force, we are all looking at our lives differently. A conspicuous consumption uh, is not what it used to be. It's taking a back seat. It's not impressive to show how much you can spend or how much you did spend on your car or your home or anything else. It's actually quite fashionable now to to brag about how much you've saved on something or how you've managed to, uh, in your own family, cut back. Uh, that's not a bad set of values for us to have. We are a consumer-dependent economy. We can still buy things, but we may be able to be more responsible about how we buy things and how we pay for things. Um, maybe if you need to buy a TV, it's okay to save for two years and buy that TV as opposed to buy that TV and pay for it over two years. I suspect the TV will get bought one way or the other, but th there's a sense of this new frugality. So the rural living is a different interpretation of that. The fair director was telling me that they, are, they were holding classes on how to grow your own vegetables 
or how to can your own things. He told me, or somebody told me, that $4 worth of tomato seed will, could yield you $1,000 retail worth of tomatoes. Uh, I suspect if I had $4 worth of tomato seed, I would get $4 worth of mushy failed tomato seed. But um, I don't think it was, I mean, I don't think everybody's going to go out and grow their own tomatoes. I, I think it's got more to do with taking control of that which you can control. You cannot control the housing market. You cannot control the stock market and you cannot control the job market. And taken together, those are the three things that make people feel prosperous. The value of their home increasing, the value of their investments for retirement or leisure or their children's education increasing, or the value of their wage increasing. Unfortunately, you have limited control over those things. You can talk about how you can have more control over them, but you do. I suppose you could have more control as to what you grow in your garden, uh, what you can, what you eat. People are nesting, they're baking more, they're watching movies at home. Some people are buying slightly fancier home entertainment systems, but they're spending that, that time and that money with their families at home. I don't know that that's a, a terrible thing. Um, if all of those three things that I'm talking about, your home, your income, and your, your investments are going up at the same time, uh, then you are likely to feel that you're prosperous. Uh, in fact, they don't have to be happening, all three don't have to be happening at the same time. Even if two of them are happening at the same time, you're, you're feeling okay. Right now, one of those things is happening. The stock market is going up. That typically happens uh, as a recession is ending or just before a recession is ending. We've seen uh, the, the major US markets yesterday hit a one-year high. If you had been invested in the market uh, since the market lows of uh, March 9th, uh, the S&P 500, which is an index that many of you might have mutual funds that resemble some sort of an S&P 500 index fund, it's up 55% or something like that. The Dow is up 45%. Uh, so markets do improve ahead of the end of a recession. The housing market, it's starting to stabilize. Uh, we know that the combination of very low mortgage rates, a 30-year fixed mortgage is still in the range of a 50-year low. It's still around 6% or lower, five and change. Um, we know that there are low home prices uh, to be had because many people, unfortunately, have, have, to, have had to sell their homes in distress, and some people have been foreclosed on. And we know that the government is offering an $8,000 credit to first-time home buyers, which has certainly spurred some amount of home buying. All of that taken together is stabilizing the housing market. It's not stabilizing it in places like Detroit or in places in the Rust Belt where factories are closing, uh, but it is stabilizing it in other parts of the country. There are actually increases uh, in some parts of the Midwest. In fact, some parts of the Midwest are uh, economically some of the, uh, the, the hardiest parts of the country. But, you know, we, we need to think about what got us here. We need to think about our own responsibility. When we talk about ethics, and re I'm reminded as to why we are in a church, and I'm reminded as to why we are part of the Westminster Town Hall Forum, and we need to think about our own role in this whole thing. Uh, about a year, well, not a year ago, but at some point in this crisis on um, Anderson Cooper's show, we did a top 10 culprits of the collapse. Who is to blame? And there were many of your, your usual characters. Uh, the heads of some banks, and, and definitely people, there's a lot of blame to go around. I did insist, and I got some resistance on this, but in the end, um, we did it. The number one person on that list, we counted down 10 days, and, you know, we, we didn't name who the next day was. You had to watch. So on day 10, it was so, I think on day five, uh, it was the Alan Greenspan for his, his policies. 
by the time we got to number one, and we, didn't, we hadn't decided on this until the day before we did it, because I really knew who I wanted to be the number one culprit for the economic collapse. I won. And the number one culprit for the economic collapse is you. I really needed Americans to understand their role in this whole thing. It is very easy to blame a lack of regulation, which there was. It is very easy to blame greed, which there was. It's very easy to blame unscrupulous mortgage brokers, which there were. It is easy uh, to blame a lot of people for this. All of those people did exist and were responsible for this, but nobody held a gun to anyone's head in America and told them to take a mortgage they could not afford. No one held a gun to anyone's head and told them to abandon all the rules of, of logical investment uh, and invest in one or two types of things. No one, no one did these, two, uh, these things to us. We have to, we have to be responsible. We have to protect ourselves. Now, I think that a lot of people were duped. I think that a lot of innocent Americans who maybe go to get a mortgage or refinance once every five years or 10 years or even less don't know the rules. And yet the person across the table from you who deals with mortgages every day, who might be a broker or a banker, they do it every day. So there was an uneven responsibility as to who should have been talking about what, to whom. Still, we have to take responsibilities uh, for what we do ourselves. Now, there's one bigger problem right now. We've got the stock market coming back. We've got a housing market that is likely stabilizing. The bigger problem for all of us, employed or not, is the unemployment situation, is jobs. That is the single biggest problem that is going to face this country for a while on a number of levels. Number one, we have an unemployment rate that is 9.7%. That's a national average. The unemployment rate for men is higher than that. The unemployment rate for women is lower. The reason for that is because men are employed in the types of jobs that have been lost for the last couple of years. Particularly, we have lost, the, the number one industry in which we have lost jobs is manufacturing. The number two is construction. These are typically jobs that were uh, overrepresented by men. The number one job area in which we've had job growth is healthcare. The number two is education. These are areas in which women are highly represented. So sometime around now, October or November, will be the first time in history that the workforce in the United States will be evenly split between men and women. Women will make up 50% of the workforce in the United States by the end of this year, which is a remarkable accomplishment for the women of this country, but it is an accomplishment largely by default at this point. It's because men have lost so many jobs. If you uh, have a... Uh, if you do not have a high school education, your unemployment rate is double the national average, close to 20% at this point. If you have a university education, if you have a bachelor's degree, it is less than half of the national average. So this, there are some basics that we can learn here. If you have students or grandchildren, children or grandchildren in school right now, it is a fact that an education will, uh, will equip you better to deal with a, a, a tough economy. Worth thinking about. The, the, the opportunity cost of getting an education today is lower than it has been in generations. The cost of getting that education is higher, as anybody with kids knows, but the opportunity cost is lower because they are not going to get that income 
going out into the workforce at the moment. So it is worth it to stay in school. It's worth it to get an advanced degree if that's what you want. It's even worth it if you, uh, like me, uh, wanted a degree in religion that you weren't entirely sure what you were going to do with that when you graduated, but the opportunity cost of staying in school for a few more years is lower today than it has been in a long time. That's number one. Uh, demographically, if you are uh, African-American, your uh, unemployment rate is substantially higher than it is uh, for the national average. If you're, if you're Latino, it's higher. If you are, now, so you take some of these things and you start putting them together. If you're an African-American male, you take those two equations, it's much high, higher. If you're an African-American male with no high school education, your unemployment rate is probably about 40% or something. So we have to think about this because we have worked so hard in this country to, to create societies where disparities are smaller. Disparities between socioeconomic groups are smaller. Now we're getting ourselves into a situation where we could have large sets of long-term unemployed people. We could be creating underclasses again because you never get as many people back into the workforce after a recession as you lost. It's just not the way it goes. They, they, uh, they lay people off and they make those of us left work do more. We're more productive with our Blackberries and our iPhones and whatever we do. We are more productive and as a result, you simply won't get those people back into the workforce. What I particularly worry about is those people who are in industrial jobs because despite what you may hear and despite the arguments you may hear about trade and jobs and the unfairness of it all, and it is unfair, the reality is manufacturing jobs are not going to come back to this country uh, in any significant number. Despite how bad it may feel to have lost factory jobs and have a whole lot of people in their 40s and 50s and 60s unemployed from those jobs because they haven't been able to be retrained or have to, haven't been able to move to those areas where there, are, there is going to be job growth, the reality is we buy manufactured goods for less money today than we have had what we have bought in the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, uh, much of it made overseas. We buy bicycles and desks and furniture, things that we used to make here in the United States. They're a lot cheaper. Americans don't want to buy the more expensive made in the U.S. versions, so we're going to have to figure out what we do with a very large unemployed manufacturing population. If you look at, I just saw a report about what is going to happen to unemployment in the next year, between the middle of 2009 and the middle of 2010, according to Moody's.com. Uh, and they, so you look at a map of all industries in the United States, and with the exception of Texas, Maryland, and the District of Columbia, every state will lose jobs. Unemployment will increase in every state from now until the middle of 2010. Now, if you take that same study and you don't look at all jobs, but you just look at health care and education, the two growth areas, only four states will lose jobs between 2009 and 2010, the middle of 2000. So everybody is, almost everybody is going to gain jobs in health care and education over the course of the next year. If you take out, if you go back to the original map now, I guess I should it'd be much easier if I was showing this to you rather than talking to you, but we are on the radio, so I'll describe it. If you go back to the original map where everybody except Texas, Maryland, and D.C. are going to gain jobs, uh, are going to lose jobs, and you look at government jobs, it's even better than the health care and uh, education scenario. There are very few jobs, that, very few states that will lose any jobs at all uh, in government jobs over the course 
of the next year. Now, we don't want an economy that is based on growth in government jobs, but the reality is for you, for your families, for your friends, for your children and grandchildren who are looking for these things, it is worth consulting those resources that are out there that will tell you geographically where jobs are, in what industries jobs are. When we talk about healthcare, we talk about government, we talk about education. I'm not talking about everybody being a doctor or uh, a teacher. There are jobs in between. There are home uh, health aides that you can get on the job training for. There are physician's assistants. Tonight on the special that we're doing, Anderson and I will feature a, a gentleman who has worked in lumber all his life. And if you've ever seen a guy who looks like he works in lumber, this is him. Beefy, strong stock. He was not doing well. He had lost his job. Uh, he decided he has got to change the way he's looking at the world. So he did his research, and he made an educated decision to become a nurse. This guy doesn't seem to come from a group of folks who think that there are big, beefy guys who are nurses. But he made that decision. He has gone through school, got an associate degree, uh, and is, uh, is becoming an, has become a nurse. He's not even, he hasn't got a job yet, but he understands because he's read all the, the, the studies and he knows that there are jobs for nurses. There are going to be. And, and I talked to him on TV and he said uh, he wants to go back and get more schooling because he's got sort of the, the, the basic nursing certification. He wants to go back and become a registered nurse and go, and he feels that that's where it is. And I said, what is his message to other people? He said, just don't be afraid. Look at what the options are. This is that part of personal responsibility that I'm talking about. We had some role in getting to this thing. We can control some things about our behavior in the future, but let's not wait for something to happen to us. Let's actually fix it. I wanted to get back to uh, this quick discussion about uh, why I uh, think the hurricanes are an interesting uh, parallel to what I'm talking about. Um, I was sent down to the, the, the Gulf of Mexico, as you know, to cover the approach of Hurricane Gustav. Uh, I went to Grand Isle, Louisiana, which back in the day was like the Hamptons or something like that. It was a place where the rich people went to spend some time, a little skinny island in the bayou, uh, right, right into the ocean, into the Gulf. Um, it, there's a, it's co close to a place called Port Fouchon, which is the uh, sort of the service center for all the offshore oil. So I figured I was close to offshore oil production. It was kind of ground zero. Uh, turns out that my, my team and I were the only ones close to this hurricane when it made landfall. I was supposed to be there for the sidebar, sidebar story on oil production. And of course, by the time this hurricane come, came, and this is the second time this has happened to me, I'm the closest guy to it. I'm a bit of a magnet for hurricanes. Um, but so, so I did that hurricane and it was, you know, we, we finished with that and I, I now CNN decided that Either I was good at covering hurricanes or they just liked the idea that hurricanes seemed to find me. So a couple of weeks later, they sent me down to cover Hurricane Ike, and I went to Baytown, Texas, which is where the, the biggest refinery on the continent is. Um, and if any of you know Texas, Baytown was actually on the wrong side of the bay as to where the hurricane ended up hitting. It ended up hitting Galveston. Um, Anderson Cooper and Gary Tuckman, who are the um, sort of the A-list hurricane guys, uh, were there. There are heavy hitters. Rick Sanchez was pretty close. Uh, I was somewhere else. Um, so I wasn't getting on TV as much for the second hurricane, for Hurricane Ike, and for some reason, I have this little bag that I carry when I do hurricanes, because all the stuff you need. You need totally different stuff for hurricanes. This vest business doesn't, doesn't work in a hurricane. So in my hurricane bag, I had a book 
that I had never read that I always wanted to read. It was called um, Isaac's Storm. Uh, it's by Eric Larson, the guy who wrote Devil in a White City, the, the story of Chicago. And I really liked Devil in a White City, and then I read his other book called Thunderstruck, and I really liked that. It was about wireless Marconi and, and wireless communications. And he had written this other book called Isaac Storm, which I just didn't, I wasn't interested in. It was about the great hurricane of September 8, 1900, um, in which um, 8,000 people were killed in Galveston. But I figured, I like this author, I wasn't really interested in the book, so I put it in my hurricane bag, thinking, I'm going to be in a hurricane, maybe I'll read it. And that's exactly what I did. I read that book that night while this hurricane was hitting Galveston Island exactly 108 years to the day of the deadly hurricane in, uh, in Galveston. The story is this. Uh, have any of you read this book, uh, Isaac Storm? All right, it's, good, it's a good story. It's got, I'll tell you why it's important to the economy. Cuba had just been hit by a major hurricane. It was on its way to the United States. Now, forecasters in the United States uh, were had been under pressure for warning people about hurricanes, getting them to close up their, uh, their shops and leave their homes and, and desert the place, and then the hurricane wasn't that serious. So they were under all of this pressure to not uh, overemphasize or not, not over-dramatize hurricanes. So they were telling people it's not going to be that serious. The Cubans were busy saying, guys, this is the big one. You've got to get out of the way. Uh, so what happened is that, and if any of you have been in a hurricane, the day before the hurricane... It's like nothing. It's beautiful. It's usually a beautiful day. Uh, you know, it's, it's sunny. It's fine. Wind starts to whip up a little bit. The folks in, in Galveston knew something was coming, but it wasn't going to be a hurricane, so they were having a grand old time. The kids were playing in the ocean. Everything was great. They didn't board up their homes. They didn't protect their valuables. They didn't send their families away. And then the big hurricane came, and 8,000 people were killed. Last year, one person died in the hurricane, and it was one person who went down to the bay because they wanted to watch the hurricane. Big difference. What's changed? We have the ability to forecast hurricanes. Same thing with recessions. We have the ability to forecast them. Um, we, last year, uh, particularly in the beginning of the year, had an administration that was routinely saying on TV that the economy is fundamentally strong in the United States. The economy in the United States is based on you all feeling good about it and spending some money. We knew starting in October of 2007 that wasn't happening. For the first time in a very, very long time, the American consumer had started to rethink their purchasing decisions because their houses were not going through the roof. The stock market, the Dow, it hit 14,000, but it was starting to come down. By October of, of 2007, the economy had overtaken the war in Iraq as the major concern of Americans when we polled them, CNN and Opinion Research Group. By December of 2007, 50% more than 50% of our respondents, it's not people who call in to CNN, this is our major polling operation, 50% of Americans said we were in a recession. Guess what? It took a year to find out that the recession started in December 2007. So what my viewers and what Americans said was going on was in fact going on in the economy. But it took so many months for this to become a major issue and then it became a campaign issue. If we had all known what was happening, we would have done things differently. We would have protected our investments. We would have done certain things differently. We would have thought about our homes. We would have thought about our loans. We would have thought about going back to school. Boy, wouldn't it have been great if you had the opportunity to be in school in September of 2008 as opposed to worried about whether you were about to lose your job amongst, with everybody else in your town that may have lost a job. Wouldn't it have been great to say, you know what, I think the sun is setting on the industry that I'm working in. 
let's go somewhere else uh, and move because Americans are mobile, they can move. But we weren't given the information. We were like the residents of Galveston in 1908. And that's why I think it's important that we keep our mind open. We've accepted the fact that we're in the worst recession uh, since the Great Depression. We get it. But we really don't wait for something to happen to us. We really don't wait for the next thing that the government is going to do. We don't wait for things to come right. Look at it. Have this discussion with your families. Um, decide where you're going, what you can do, where you can work, should one consider moving. You live in a, in a beautiful part of the country uh, and fortunately one that has, has sustained this recession particularly well. But make sure that your kids and your grandchildren are having this discussion, that your families, your spouses, your co-workers, uh, your, your colleagues at church are having this discussion. It's about these three things you have to control. You have to try and get better control over. Your home situation, your work situation, and your investment situation. There is a lot of information out there. Hopefully, we're bringing some of that to you. But you can do what you can. You, you can take control of certain things. For those things that you can't, that are not there, take control of your spending. Take control of growing your vegetables or canning. Whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you decide that you have a little more control over your life, this is the time to do it. The road up from a recession can be very, very enjoyable. It can be very profitable. It can very, be very fruitful. I often say that uh, people got, roll, you know, as the recession truck rolled out of the garage, people got run over. That truck is going to reverse back into the garage. Don't be lying there when it comes back in. Get up and, and, and take some advantage of that. I hope that's the kind of information I give you. I'd like to stop talking now uh, and be able to give you an opportunity to ask some of your questions of me. But thank you for being such a fantastic audience. Thank you, Ali Velshi. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church and moderator of the forum. Our speaker today is CNN's chief business correspondent, Ali Velshi. While the ushers collect questions from the in-house audience at Westminster, I'd like to invite you to join us in Westminster's sanctuary for the next forum in our fall series on Thursday, October 8th, when Nicholas Kristof, Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist from the New York Times, will address the forum. Additional information on the fall series is available online at eWestminsterTownHallForum.org. Now, Ali Velshi, if you'll return to the pulpit, I'll present the questions from our audience. I'm curious, uh, before the questions get to me, I want to get one of mine in. Sure. On your travels across the country, uh, this declaration or assertion that the number one culprit in the uh, crisis we've been living through is the individual, the consumer, the citizen. In your travels across the country, are people taking uh, responsibility for that? Yes. I, I, don't, uh, I don't meet with a lot of resistance to the idea. I get some sighs and some gasps, but generally uh, I get people saying, we have got to change our culture and our expectations of immediacy, of bigger, of better. Now, some people will say the media has fed that. They will say, you're the ones who told us. It, well, I don't mean the news, but the ads for cheap mortgages, the, the, the TV reality shows that showed people redoing their houses so they could resell it or, or buying bigger houses. Uh, that popular culture has created this idea of more and more and more. But again, it goes back to responsibility. Because they say it to you on TV doesn't mean it's true unless I'm the guy saying it. 
A question about home ownership. It's long been pictured as an admirable thing. Is it surprising that people who felt, quote, left behind took low interest mortgages? This is a, a very good question, and I, I'm not here to pitch my book, but I do write extensively on this in my book. Uh, I think it is one of the biggest problems that we've got in this country. Uh, if you look at other countries, they create a remarkable incentive and create great ease to saving adequately for retirement. There is no country in the world that, present, that offers a, a, a reduction on your taxes because you take a mortgage, because you get into debt. The incentive is upside down. Let me tell you, for all of the money that the government loses because it gives a mortgage rebate, we do not have a higher mortgage, a higher home ownership rate in the United States than other industrialized countries. So other people buy as many homes without the incentive. I think you're absolutely, that, that question is absolutely right. We are incenting debt when we should be incenting the creation of equity. Buying a house is sometimes the creation of equity. It's not always the creation of equity. It's okay to rent if you can't afford to buy. And I think we have to make that very, very clear. It's also okay to not want to gamble on interest rates. I work in the business world all the time, and I have a fixed rate mortgage because I don't feel like gambling on interest rates. It's okay to do that. I have a friend with a fixed rate mortgage who got a phone call from their bank the other day, and the bank said, I can offer you a better rate on your mortgage. And it was maybe a quarter of a percent lower to get into an adjustable rate mortgage. We have got to understand whether we're ready to buy a house, we've got to understand whether we can afford that house, and, and we've got to stick to some rules. If we're not ready, don't buy the house. What happens if health care reform does not happen in the U.S.? Well, I think if health care reform doesn't happen in the U.S., we'll be exactly where we are now. We have uh, somewhere close to 50 million people uh, who do not have health insurance in this country, and I'm sure I'll get a phone call or an email from someone to say I'm exaggerating the number. I'm not, because seven more million people have been unemployed in this recession, so it used to be about 40. Now it's going to be about 50. Um, that's not a fundamentally fair way to be in society, but what we're trying to address is what the fundamentally fair way to fix that problem is, and we certainly don't have that answer. So the status quo will continue. We pay, just to give you an example, um, again, someone's not going to like this example because I'm comparing it to Canada, we, we pay double as a percentage of our GDP for health care what Canada pays and everyone there is insured. There's something wrong with how much we pay for health care in this country. Uh, how we solve it is for something... Thank you. How we solve that problem, how we solve that problem is for smarter people than me, but it does have to be solved. Question related to job loss and particularly your statistics on government employment as being a growth sector. Can the U.S. afford to end the huge military and job-related industries in defense, in defense occupations, uh, and, and the occupations in Afghanistan and Iraq without escalating unemployment even more for men in America? A very interesting point you make there because, again, the military is another male-dominated field. Um, that would, it, would, it would be worse for unemployment if, if we had to pull a lot of our forces back. I'd rather deal with the higher unemployment problem than keep people fighting in a war because we're trying to keep them employed. In your, in your travels across America, do you hear any sort of groundswell, this question asks, a groundswell for uh, an economic imperative for restructuring the economy? I do. You know, it's not 
kitchen table conversation. So it doesn't tend to, I mean, there are people who read books on this stuff and come to me and say, this is how we need to look at it. This is how we need to look at it. The problem is most people don't have casual conversations as to how to restructure the economy. And frankly, I should tell you, we're not all that broken. We, we still are a society that allows people to achieve greater station in life, um, to, to get a job, uh, to train in a different industry, to choose what you want to work in, to choose what part of this great country you want to live in, to see uh, an African-American man elected to the White House after a very close race uh, with a woman. I mean, there's more going right in this country than there is going wrong. Even with our economy, the bottom line is a, it was like a perfect storm. A lot of things went wrong at the same time. I don't know that we need restructuring as much as we need proper rules. I would describe our financial regulation system in this country as being built for cars that go 25 miles an hour in a world where cars go 100 miles an hour. We just need some things changed. We still need the highway. They still have to drive on the same side of the highway. We just need rules that deal with the speed at which things uh, happen these days. Question somewhat related to the regulations you refer to. I've seen a lot of news coverage, media coverage, of the missteps which led to the financial crisis, not the least of which are the risk encouraging incentive structures in many of our large financial institutions. What kind of news coverage can we expect on the financial institution regulations and the works that are in Congress? That's an excellent question. We, we certainly, I have been biased against uh, too much coverage in the last year about executive pay. Not that I don't think it is probably one of the most serious issues we have to face, but as I've described it, the crisis that we have been in is akin to uh, your three-year-old having set fire to your curtains, uh, and then you're discussing whether or not three-year-olds should be allowed to have matches. Uh, first, we have to put the fire out before your house burns down. Then, we have to engage in a discussion about why your three-year-old had matches in the first place. So now we are moving into the place where we can discuss why the three-year-old should have matches. In this case, the three-year-olds are Wall Street executives. Um, it is, there is a point at which Again, I'm a free marketer. I believe in capital markets. I believe in competition. I don't necessarily understand why one has to make more money, be guaranteed to make more money in a year uh, than most of us combined will ever make in our lifetimes, whether or not their company fails or succeeds. I just don't get that. I think that you have, you have stakeholders in a company. You have shareholders, you have employees, you have customers, and you have the community in which you exist. If they are all prospering, you too should prosper, and you should make lots of money for doing that. I don't mind that at all. I can just tell you that when you look at the failures of Merrill Lynch, of Bear Stearns, and of Lehman Brothers and others, I could have driven them into the ground for a lot less money. <laughs> to pursue that question about the news media coverage, who kept the information about the upcoming recession from the public in 2007? Where was the media in helping the people understand what was happening? Yeah, we were there, uh, at least at CNN. I, I take some great pride that Christine Romans, my colleague, uh, Jerry Willis, who deals with our real estate, and I were out there saying this is a problem. I remember being up there after the president spoke or the treasury secretary spoke or the labor secretary spoke. I remember in May of 2008 when we still, the whole country wasn't yet convinced it was a recession um, and, and unemployment spiked and the labor secretary said it's because of students uh, not getting their summer jobs or something like that. 
you know, we were out there beating that drum. Unfortunately, that drum's hard to beat when it doesn't feel like a crisis. When the, drow, when the Dow dropped 777 points, I guarantee you I had the attention of everyone in America. Um, but back in 2000, 2007, that was hard. Uh, and I think that's a lesson that we've learned, Tim, that I'm going to push harder and my colleagues are going to push harder when we start to see the indications of something to get out there and give it to you. I'm going to go back and read Isaac Storm when I forget that we don't whitewash things. We don't want to glaze over things that could be very serious because people can get hurt. Uh, questions about the new frugality are coming in. Will the recovery take longer because of the new frugality? While the consumer is saving, the government is spending, thus offsetting the new frugality? Yeah. Yeah, it, 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 both, it's a very astute question. Uh, yes, the recovery will take longer because of the new frugality or rural living or whatever you wish to call it. And, and yes, our government will get into the hole uh, for every month that we're doing that. But the reality is we cannot go into a recession as unarmed as we were going into this one. The savings rate of Americans going into this recession was under 2%. Now Rush Limbaugh and the likes of people like that continue to criticize me for saying this is a worse recession uh, than we had in the 80s. It is on every empirical level, first of all. So I mean, I, if Rush wants to come and talk to me about it, I'm happy to compare notes. But I've got the evidence. I, I'm not a commentator, I'm a reporter. So I actually have to have my facts right. But let me tell you, let me tell you what my, number one, in, in the 80s, we didn't have an absolute freeze of credit around the world. But number two, in 1982, Americans saved 12.8% of their paycheck. They banked it. They had money. So if there was a recession that was going to last a year or 18 months, people actually had savings. We don't have savings today. You know why we don't have savings? Because why would you need savings when your house was going up as, as rapidly as it was? Why would you need savings when the unemployment rate was 5% so pretty much everybody who wanted a job had a job? Why would you need savings when the Dow was gaining 10, 15, 20% a year? We forgot to save. We went into a recession without saving. Now we're at about a 5 or 6% savings rate. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it'll be, what number we have to kick to before people feel comfortable buying the fridge or apparently they're comfortable buying a car if you give them 4,500 bucks to do it. Um, we're, we're getting to a point where we're easier on this, but I think we've got to have a cushion so that if we get into another recession again, and it will happen, we're a little safer. Time for one more brief answer. Uh, tell us something about the path from religion, the study of religion, which you took at to economic correspondent on the media. you got about 30 <laughs> seconds. Go for it. Yeah, they don't really invite a lot of guys like me into churches. Um, it, uh, it was an excellent area of study. It's a study about human behavior. Religion is, the, is, is so much the history of why we believe what we do and why we behave the way we do. Uh, in this country, uh, it's a sad commentary, but uh, money's become part of that. So my training in religion really led me to understand things about people's aspirations and hopes. And let me just tell you, uh, real religion's probably more profitable than just pursuing money. Thank you, Ali Velshi.